like all things with Jung, concepts get slippery and there, there's a dynamism in them that sometimes when I read stuff about shadow, I think, wow, that's almost like mathematics. You know, the, the, the shadow is this, and to work with the shadow, you do that. And if you do step ABC, you'll hug your shadow and you'll go off into the sunset, loving it. But that's not what the shadow is from a Jungian perspective. Imagine yourself under a starry sky around the warm glow of the sacred fire as your hosts, Saren Odinson, Jim Two Snakes, and Caitlin Stormbreaker talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late-night conversations by real-life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Goddess of culverts and lighthouses, goddess of burrows and coves and safety and narrow escapes, stand where you stand and shine like kindness on our children. From you, they learn right and wrong and how to wear capes for hunting or self-concealment, how to find a turtle's egg cache or a rabbit warren, how to distinguish a dangerous impulse from a lovely whim and when to keep a flower or a friend, and where it's safe to swim. It's hard work, I know, to shine all the time, but it's never pointless. Sometimes it's divine. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 97. I am your host, Jim Two Snakes, and I'm flying solo for this introduction today. Saren and Caitlin have some busy schedules. If you are one of our Patreon supporters and you're getting this episode early, it's because Saren is getting ready for Ann Arbor Pagan Pride tomorrow. So if you want to meet with Sarenth, if you haven't before, or if you just want to see him again, check out Ann Arbor Pagan Pride. That's going to be a really fun event. Sarenth is always good with his classes, and there are going to be a ton of other really amazing presenters there. So please, please check that out. Our opening prayer tonight was actually a poem by the Stoic philosopher Diodemus. Probably mispronouncing that, but it was translated by Stephanie Burt. Just felt like a really nice poem to open with. And Also, while I'm thinking about events, I want you all to check out a link that I'm going to leave in the show notes for Crossing Hedgerows Sanctuary, because next Sunday, September 18th at 2 p.m., I'm going to be conducting the Peruvian Fire Ceremony. And I know you remember that Sarenth is on the board of Crossing Hedgerows. Uh, Caitlin and other people volunteer there a lot. And we had Jean on from Crossing Hedgerows on one of our episodes. But this is going to be an event to help raise awareness and hopefully some funding for Crossing Hedgerows. So if you've never had a chance to be at one of my Peruvian fire ceremonies, or 
if you miss them because it's been several years since I've been able to conduct one because of the uh, panini, then come and check it out at Crossing Hedgerows. And like I said, the link for that will be in the show notes. Something else that's in the show notes that I want you to take a look at is a rundown and a listing of our Patreon supporters. We have, of course, our Tinder, Spark, and Kindling supporters all listed there, including some new supporters like Emmy and Cami. And Cami is amazing. Just signed up for a year-long subscription. Signed up, signed up for an entire year all at once. How's that? That's pretty amazing. But of course, our Flame supporters, Victoria, Amanda, and Branadov. And Victoria is really awesome. Going back to school to add a psychology degree to their resume and also allowing another pagan into that space, which is something that's really needed, of course. And Branadov, of course, we cannot thank enough because they host the monthly metaphysical chat on our Discord server. And our Blaze Level sponsor, Kirk Thomas, who you remember we interviewed a few episodes back. Kirk is really supportive of us as a Blaze Level member, and we really appreciate it. With that, I think that covers all the bases of things I wanted to chat about. So I'm going to turn us over to that interview. We are really excited to have with us tonight's guest, Ken James, PhD, who is a member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. And the reason I'm really excited about this is because, you know, as we've talked about on this show several times, we've, you know, speculated about the differences and the similarities between Jung and shadow work, uh, how they're used in a psychological context versus how they're used in a occult or metaphysical context. And so when I ran across Ken's biography and saw that his work can include the Kabbalah, spirituality, theology, and divination, I thought, there is the guest for us. So Ken, welcome to Around Grandfather Fire. Thank you for, for coming on the show tonight. Well, thank you for asking me. Yeah, I, it, it's really exciting. Now, I, you know, I know people are going to be curious, and that is quite a lot of stuff that's in your background there. So does Jungian psychology lend itself to being interested in spiritual things, or is that something that you arrived at separately? Or how did that look like for you getting um, on your, your path? Yeah, definitely. Jungian psychology not only allows for it, but encourages it. Um, and it's really hard to say which came first. Uh, I was raised within a particular religious tradition. Um, I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that's in my background. And I started reading, well, I read Jung for the first time when I was 16. Oh, wow. And this would have been sometime in the 60s. And so that was a time of big social upheaval and, you know, a lot of anti-war activity. Um, And I remember reading uh, in Jung 
where he said, uh, the only hope for Western civilization is for each and every person to become responsible for his or her own consciousness. And I thought, no, no, I threw it across the room because I, I said, this is a time for mass movement. We have to band together and tie ourselves to trees and, you know, all the crazy stuff that we did in the right, 60s. Right. And the older I, uh, I've gotten, the more and more I realize that Jung is right, because without taking responsibility for my own consciousness, we're just a bunch of sleeping people trying to accomplish something together. And that's not going to go anywhere fast. So um, that makes a lot of sense because I mean, looking at it very pragmatically, we have to be responsible for our own biases, our own preconceptions, our own, you know, thing that's going on within ourselves before we can band together with other people in a good way. It's, it's a prerequisite almost. Yeah. Well, and we have to first become aware of our own biases because, you know, we all like to think that we're, we're the one we're great. We're, you know, we have it all worked out. And to a certain extent, I think um, it's important to have that starting out. You know, if, if someone in childhood is too tentative or too frightened or too unwilling to take the risks that life requires, it isn't a good thing. But at a certain point, I think we have to take responsibility for the things that you mentioned, which um, really move us into issues of shadow uh, from a Jungian perspective, which I don't think is much different than shadow in other contexts. Although, um, like all things with Jung, concepts get slippery and there, there's a dynamism in them that sometimes when I read uh, stuff about shadow, I think, wow, that's almost like mathematics. You know, the, the, the shadow is this, and to work with the shadow, you do that. And if you do step ABC, you'll hug your shadow and you'll go off into the sunset loving it. But that's not what the shadow oh, yeah. is from a Jungian perspective. Yeah, I see it what you mean. Yeah, it's not yeah. that formulaic as direct. it is not that formulaic at all. Yeah. Right. Well, well, even the the trauma that somebody might experience could be similar to the way somebody else experiences it. You know, like having childhood abuse, physical yes. abuse. Um, the way those people have to approach that shadow is totally different because of who they are as a person is totally different. Yes, that's a so very I, good point, right? Yeah, there's not really a, a clear-cut equation on how to approach shadow. No, and there can't be. Uh, the term that Jung uses for this kind of inner work is individuation. And it doesn't mean individualism, because we can't individuate without relationships with others. But my path is not your path. And... You know, even if I had an identical twin, my path wouldn't be his or her, well, couldn't be her, my path wouldn't be his path, um, because the psyche is much more dynamic. And from a Jungian perspective, at the core of the psyche, we're all connected, and each of us is an expression of an aspect of that deep psyche. So we all have to be here in all of our um, wholeness in all of our woundedness as well. 
I like that. I think it's really striking, especially with the uh, early psychologists um, coming out of the the field of philosophy like they did. You know, if you look like Hegel, for instance, and his uh, dynamics of synthesis, a lot of these kinds of mm, shadows, I guess you might call them jokingly, uh, of philosophy keep popping up again and again because they were coming out of that discipline and trying to go, all right, yes. well, let's craft a theory of mind to try and figure this out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the things I, I have a, a BS in psychology. It's one of the things that really struck me the more that we got into theory was um, the impact of personal philosophy on theory of mind and how that really pushed Freud in one direction and Jung in completely different directions. And mm-hmm. even coming out of the same milieu, those two eventually just kind of went, okay, never the twain shall meet. <laughs> we are clearly at an impasse here. And I, I find that part of psychology and and spirituality as well really fascinating because there's this nonlinearity to it, like you were mentioning earlier, whether we're talking about shadow, light, deep psyche, and collective unconscious. There's this constant almost playfulness that I think gets kind of lost in the more white tower aspects of psychology and psychiatry, especially because once you start to play with these concepts and you're actually like interacting with people in a one-on-one basis, like with your own practice, I'm sure you get to see this concept literally play out in real time and how people respond or shift depending on how they're approaching the therapeutic model to start with. And then where they come out of the process at the end of their time with you or their time with the the modality in general. I I find that part of psychology exceptionally fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting that you said the, you didn't say preconceptions, but there are ideas about what the psyche is and what psychotherapy should be. And uh, a lot of times for the more sophisticated people, Um, who know a lot about psychology, but may not know a lot about Jung, there's a lot of unlearning. Um, And I once had uh, a mental health practitioner, actually a psychiatrist in my practice. And uh, we were talking and she was bringing material in. And finally, one day she looked at me and she said, you're just making this up as you go along, aren't you? And I said, (laughs) that's amazing. And I said, how else would I do this? There's only one you. And she kind of looked and then settled down. And we worked for like 10 years after that. But she clearly had a preconceived idea of what I ought to be doing. And I wasn't fulfilling that preconceived idea. So... That's that's actually an amazing insight, not only to to psychology, but to ritual and the esoteric in general. I mean, if it's all individualized, then everybody is unique in their approach. And there might be similarities and overlap, but none are going to be identically the same. Right. I think it's the difference between doing something performatively Mm -hmm. and doing it from your essence. You know, ritual, for example, and I already referenced my um, early experiences with Catholicism, which is full of ritual, but it it was more ritualistic than ritual. 
that there were certain steps that had to be gone through. <clears throat> and if the steps were gone through, then you were okay for another week. But there was no sense of transformation. And before I, uh, I became, well, I became a Jungian analyst because I felt that was the only way I could practice honestly, because as an analyst, Freudian or Jungian or Adlerian, uh, the primary, the core of training is your own analysis. And in my case, several, you know, even before I started. And in doing that, I think you, you come to understand that if you're trying to do it like a model, or if you're trying to be a good patient, you will fail. And my first analyst who knew me, he happened to be a professor at the university where I got my uh, doctorate. And, um, but I never, I did not have him as a, a teacher. But after we were working for a while, he said to me, you know, Ken, you don't have to get an A in analysis. And he, he really, you know, had my number because, of course, I would do anything relentlessly and to get the best out of it. And that, you know, what does that even mean when you're doing personal work? I mean, I wonder if there's a, a correlation between how like our society is set up to where everything is like, there's almost a model to how you're supposed to be an American. You have to have that, that house with the white picket fence and this specific car, and you have to wear these clothes and have this kind of job and have a dog and some kids and a marriage and all that stuff. And there, there's almost like a, a preset line and a road that you have to follow growing up in, our society and individuation and uniqueness and following your own path is a little bit, maybe not so much anymore, but it, it was, especially me growing up in the nineties, it was, there was a lot of shit being thrown at us and saying, you have to go to college and you have to graduate high school and you have to get a good job and you have to do this. And it's like, I, my, I'm not built to do that. I was never built to do that. I grew up on the lake and in the wilds and in the forest and, you know, doing and forging my own path and doing these things. And so when I started my path down doing yoga and going into spirituality, I remember running into these walls of like, well, I'm not doing it the same way that they're doing it. So I'm doing it wrong. I have to change what I'm doing because it doesn't look like theirs. And I sat in that for a really long time until somebody said, do it your way and be okay with that. Because the only way it's going to work for you is if you do it your way. But I had to have somebody tell me that. And I wonder if that's where a lot of that, a lot of these things are coming up. Um, like you're only a healer if you fit within these this list of five things, or you're only a, a spirit worker. If you only fit into this list of 10 things, or you're a, a born naturalist, if you're these five things, I wonder if that's where all of that comes from, because we are built to believe that we have to fit into a mold when there is no mold to fit into. Right. Right. Or at least there's no external mold. Uh, right. The archetypal ground is actually the organizing sort of principle behind all experience. But what you were talking about, I want to 
piggyback on it because it's so important. All of those things, this is how you do it. And this is how you must be. They're flattening and they're egoic, meaning they, they make the ego feel safe. Because if I look at you and I, I can kind of say, okay, a woman, certain age, da, 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 da. And I don't have to really reckon with you because I've got my, you know, list of what you must be. And of course, that's very um, helpful to the collective, which kind of flattens everything out. You know, you, I'm thinking of Auden's poem to the unknown citizen where he goes through, if you haven't read it, read it. If, where he goes through all of it, this person did everything according to the book, had children. When there was a war, he went to war. When there was peace, he stayed home. And then the last two lines are the most chilling. Uh, it's something like, was he happy? The question is absurd. If anything had been wrong, we certainly would have heard. And of course, you wouldn't have. Because he was sort of falling into line in terms of the mold that was uh, prescribed. And I do think perhaps it's a little bit easier today. There seems to be more openness, but when I work with young people, it's a different world, but it's the same struggle in different areas. Um, Yeah. I, I was going to say there's almost too much freedom, but then I, that's a ridiculous statement. Um, well, it, it actually, you know, occurs to me as you and Storm were talking that it's as society is changing right now and, and, and the things that you've seen over the course of your practice and experience, um, I, do, I, I wonder if there's a pendulum swing in there where mm. – We've come from times when conformity and following the formula worked two periods now where I wouldn't say too much freedom, but there's so much abstract that, that might actually be challenged to people as well, you know, um, in, in the sense that I see a lot of pressure with social media and stuff where people feel like they have to be an artist, they have to be a star, they have to be a, a content creator, and and there's a different sort of freedom and limitation there. Boy, I hadn't thought about social media and that that's just because of my old brain. Although I'm (laughs) active on a couple of platforms, but it doesn't, you know, I don't really think of it the way I think most young people and certainly people with the level of sophistication that you all have with uh, social media and podcasting would have, but I think you're right. And there are so many models out there that there's almost uh, a pressure to be non-conforming in a particular way, yes. which of course is absurd, but it, it can be very difficult, I think, especially if people have divergent views about certain things, because I do believe that we become much more prescriptive, regardless of where you fall on a political spectrum or social spectrum or whatever spectrum. But there are certain um, things you must say and things you mustn't say. And it's, it really is stultifying if you don't have the courage to try to find your own path among all of the 
options that are available. Yeah, non-conforming in a particular way is a brilliant way of putting it. I think that's really a summary of what I see, at least with in the younger people that I know, including my own family members. There's there's a different sort of pressure. I mean, uh, it, it gets into that concept of you know when there is absolutely no structure that you can get lost quite easily there as well. Yes. Right. Right. I think too, there's something to be said for um, it's something that's kind of, kind of niggling in the back of my head as we're talking about concepts of, of freedom. It's that, it's not that we have too much freedom so much as the pathways to freedom are so rigidly defined within mm-hmm. our uh, overstructures, politically, socially, spiritually. Uh, even religion at this point is getting incredibly prescriptivist with, in order to reach the top of the mountain, you must do X, Y, and Z things instead of having in my relation to all of this as a polytheist, like this is about relationship and uh, there's no salvific narrative needed. So there's an absence of that conformity that's required, which sometimes provides a, such a wide ranging road to walk for new folks to polytheism that they're like, well, what do I do? And how do I do it? Right. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. get this. This is all right. about relationship. This is not about some destination in the future. This is like every day. And it really blows people's minds because there's, this undercurrent of conformity that still exists even within radical spaces that dogs them because it doesn't allow for true nonconformity. What it does is it straitjackets whatever the movement is politically, religiously, spiritually, whatever you want to put on it. Even magic gets into this problem. I'm sure you've yeah. experienced this with Kabbalah yeah. um, where unless you are doing X, Y, Z in this particular order, this ritual will not be effective. Okay, so if you don't have the golden sword, what are you doing? Um, Right. I think that's that's really where a lot of this falls down is, and I think kind of tying this into archetypes that we're not really accessing, right? So what does it actually mean to be your own ruler? What does it mean to be sovereign? This is something that comes up Mm -hmm. on both sides of the political spectrum, sovereignty and ideas of that. And it comes up a lot in the spiritual circles I run in, because how do you square sacred kingship with very leftist ideologies of, I will not conform to a monarchical model of, of, of understanding myself, but yet, so there's there's a lot to, to parse there because I think part of it is because we don't have very good models of what healthy conformity looks like on the one hand, and we are being so performative around ideas of what we think conformity is on the other. Like, does that yeah, square, yeah. square with your experience? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the question for me is conform to what? Because the first the first step in really owning your own power and your own responsibility is to ask yourself what aspect of the archetypal ground is moving in me. And that takes a while to discern. You, you can't just like get a, a list of archetypes and go, I want to be that one. That doesn't work. You have to look at 
you know, what is emerging in my life? As, as um, Jim mentioned, if you look at my bio, I've done a lot of things. And, and I don't mean that in a bragging way, but it's like, can't this guy get a job? I mean, he just seems to be going from one thing to the other. But at this point in my life, I can really discern a thread that I thought I was responding to. In I started out, my first degree was in mathematics. And I always tell people if mathematics would have done the job that I wanted it to do, I would have ever gotten involved in any of this stuff, but it just didn't. The world didn't work that way, you know? And, you know, there was, there was a pull that I didn't, wasn't even aware of that actually, as I look in retrospect, led me where I needed to be. I use that, although that's a little egoic, but it, when I look back, okay, that's the Ken project. You know, it wasn't what little Ken thought when he made a decision to major in this and go to that school. But the, the Ken project, I'm important to it, but I don't run it. I'm responsible for it. Literally, I have to respond to what's moving deeply in me. Um, and you're right about my studies of the Kabbalah. I was very lucky to have studied with someone, first of all, who allowed me to study with him. Uh, and because I'm not, I wasn't born Jewish. I wasn't raised Jewish. I'm not Jewish. Um, but also, if you ask the question, he would, he would attempt to help you find the answer, as opposed to some of the more formulaic approaches, which is, oh, you know, that you have to wait till the third course before mm-hmm. you can ask about angels. Well, what if you're asking about angels now? <laughs> you know, that maybe you should get the answer now. Um, and you're right in the realm of magic. I'm expecting any day now someone to, you know, to publish a grimoire of chaos magic so that we'll have all the rules. And it's sort of like, I mean, I'm not an expert in that area, but I kind of think that would be a, you know, a, a contradiction to have the rules for how you do chaos magic. Yeah. I mean, the problem is once you publish that book, the rules to chaos magic would change. That's how chaos works. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Um, I really, I like how you phrased it as the Ken project. And I think, that's a really fascinating way for people to look at their own lives. This is an ongoing project. And it actually kind of leads me a little bit to a question that I want to ask, which is, you know, within certain communities, there's a, a ton of talk about shadow work, but it occurs to me that that leaves out or leaves not talked about as much a lot of other concepts that might've come from Jungian thought and, what do you see as like maybe the biggest gaps that aren't being talked about? Hmm. That's a good question. And let's start with your question of shadow work. Because the idea of shadow work, um, to really become involved in shadow work, you really have to go through a period of intense embarrassment and shame. Because our first way to really get the scent of the shadow is realizing that we're creating an embodiment of that shadow out there in the world 
through projection. So when I don't like those people, whatever those people are, fill in the blank, you are looking at shadow. And most of us don't want to look at that. They would rather otherize and expel. And then I feel good, except the shadow is vast. And there will be other otherizing and then expulsion until finally you're left on a rock all by yourself, completely unconscious. So to really look at shadow, we have to consider two other what I would call dominant elements of the psyche. And that's the persona and the anima or the animus. And imagine, if you will, the ego as like a ball. And the part of the ego that that connects with the, I call so-called outer world, sort of creates a coding of ways, this is not conscious, but ways that either I've been reinforced for being in the world, or I've been taught to be in the world, or I just simply want to be in the world. That's called the persona. It's the face I show to the world. And it's a selective and intensification process that takes a look at all of the possibilities in my sphere of activity. And certain a certain subset of those are how I present myself to the world. By doing that selection and intensification, I'm automatically coding the other side of the ego with the shadow. So if I believe it's important to be kind, then people who are mean would be people I don't like, and meanness would be in my shadow. Oh, fascinating. The shadow is composed of all of those elements or all of those qualities that I could embody, but I don't embody. But more than that, it bothers me when you embody it. And that's the key. And the anima or the, so the encounter with the shadow is always repulsive. When we encounter the shadow, we are repelled. The shadow kind of buffers us from going more deeply into the unconscious. But psyche has a trick, and that trick is the anima or the animus. And I won't get involved in all of the controversy about what Jung wrote about the anima and the animus, because it was very clear. I mean, Jung died in 61. So, you know, that was the world. And yes, it was very gender conformist and all of that. But the important thing to think about the anima or the animus is it is an attractive force just as a shadow is a repulsive force. So this, what I would call absolute other within the deep part of my psyche fascinates me. It attracts me. I will learn about it also primarily through projection at first. That's the essence of falling in love or even making a friend. But ultimately I have to understand that that attractive force is also within me. And it helps us overcome the repulsion of the shadow to get more deeply into the unconscious, which is where healing comes from. It may have gone far astray from where you wanted it to go by asking about shadow. So No, no. I, I, I think that really fits because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the different schools and, 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 uh, 
groups of people, they all kind of talk about the shadow in a little bit different way. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And and it also, it just spurs all kinds of side thoughts. Um, you know, the, the, the first two uh, side thoughts that come to mind are, you know, some metaphysical schools and, and thoughts would tell you that you need to confront the shadow or make peace with it. I'd be interested in, in what you think about that. But it also occurs to me that that dynamic being off or people maybe not understanding it well could play quite a bit into what we see in a lot of spaces now of the manifestation culture and only paying attention to what's positive and good in our lives. And, and I'm interested, <laughs> it seems to me that I see how those two things fit together. Wow. That's, that's huge. And it's, it is something that I've also encountered and struggle with. I've had, you know, there are religious movements that you know, science of mind, for example, which is a very, I think, important body of teaching. But there does tend to be sort of an anathematizing of anything negative. And I look at that as feeding the ego and make, uh, allowing the ego to imagine that it creates its own reality. Uh, that's just way too grandiose for me, not only as a Jungian, but as a person who's been on the planet for many decades now. Because if I created my, re my own reality, why am I driving a Dodge? You know, I, I, <laughs> I just, it doesn't work for me. Um, am I an important co-creator in the reality of my life? Absolutely. And I have to be active in it. But there is also darkness. There's also frustration. There are also um, hopes that I've had that didn't come to pass. And I've had to make peace with that. Again, you know, I'm sure we've all known loss. People die. People leave for whatever reason. And we have to cope with that. We have to accept that, not rejoice in it. But, you know, grief is not so much a set of actions as it is the profound process of integrating loss. And if I don't even want to look at loss, how am I going to integrate it? There won't be any way for that to happen. And, you know, I understand manifestation uh, teachings and, um, you know, in my uh, estimation, they make a little bit little bit too much of synchronicity and don't really understand the deeper aspect of the synchronistic event, which is to whip the ego into shape and let the ego understand it does not know how the world is organized. So when I have that synchronistic event, that's not, I'm special. I had a synchronistic event. Actually, it's, oh, not only don't I know the answers, I'm not even sure of the questions anymore. And then consciousness like can that. begin, you know? I appreciate that. Um, as somebody who read in an occult shop for years where the secret DVD was literally playing the entire time I was doing readings there, um, I got to know at least some of the 
manifestation uh, ideas. And it always struck me as very funny that one of the primary vehicles they used for expressing it was literally treating the universe like a genie. He, he literally a genie shows up in, in the DVD of the secret. Now they explain it to you. And I'm like, wow. So you just take off all your responsibility and shove it onto the universe. That seems really convenient. Uh, where does the, the room for grief come in? Where does the room for, for responsibility? Cause one of the things that really struck me about your, your talk earlier about the Ken project or the Sarath project or the gym project, the storm project is there's a radical responsibility because you're the facilitator, not the owner of your life. That is a very different thing from what most people think when they're, they have the words, I am sovereign of my life. Like a sovereign is actually a facilitator, like in the wide scope of things. So how does that play into um, how you approach the implications of, of this in the healing journey, whether it's shadow work, whether it's other healing journeys and things like that? Yeah. The idea of I'm the sovereign of my life, I think that that metaphor is extremely positive because uh, Jung talked about the relationship that the ego has to this core in the psyche that I alluded to earlier, where all of us are connected throughout all space and across all time. And the term that Jung used for that core is the self. And the correct attitude of the ego, and it's not an on-off switch, it's a constant struggle, is to be aware of that connection between the ego and the self. I'll hold my hand up so you can see what I'm doing. And that is the place where the ego attains, to use your term, sovereignty, in the sense that, you know, the sovereign has to be aware of what's going on in the territory and understand when it will be wiser to shut the doors and pull in and when it will be wiser to open the doors and move out. All of that can only be done realistically if the ego continues to maintain that connection to the self, which Jung has been criticized for, that concept, because it's it seems too too much like a theological statement. Well, you know, Jung was a psychologist. He <clears throat> talked about the self. If he had been a theologian, he might have talked about God or the gods, probably more likely. But that connection <clears throat> is where I derive sovereignty. That connection is where I derive my capacity to live my life in accordance with my vocation. And I use that word because over the, the door of um, his tower, Jung had inscribed, it wasn't over the door, that's Dante, on a stone, Jung had inscribed the statement in Latin, vocatus atque non vocatus, deus aderet, called or uncalled, God is present. And it was a reminder to him that even though I think I wake up, I do this, I do that, it is grounded in that source, which Jung called the self. Yeah, I can totally see that. I actually see 
what comes to mind to me on that is how that plays into many of us who are animists in in leaning. So that self expands beyond Completely. the the right. human aspect of it into something that's greater, including the animating force of of many yes. things within the universe, if not everything. Yep. Yep. I love yeah. that. So a little bit, another term that comes up a lot, and you've used it a few times already, is ego. So you would define that more. Ego is my, what, awareness of where I am as an individual as opposed to the awareness of the entire source. Is that what I'm understanding? That, that's one way of looking at it. Think of the ego as a complex of identity. And I'll just get a little theoretical here because um, the term ego, obviously these terms are not trademarked, or as I like to say it, psychology is not mathematics. So these are not necessarily well-defined terms. The way Freud uses the term ego, which is really where I think psychology first got the notion of the ego. Uh, Freud looked at it as a structural part of the psyche. So my ego was a part of my psyche. So was the id, so was the superego. It's kind of like, you know, the bathroom, the living room, the kitchen. They're just structurally part of it. Jung, because of a lot of his work, came to see that that is probably not true. And a concept that Jung originated and that Freud adopted, and even after Jung and Freud separated, Freud still uh, found that this concept was valuable. It's the concept of the complex. And a complex is defined as a feeling-toned set of ideas and images with an archetypal core. So my mother complex, which is you know, probably based on my interactions with my personal mother and others who have mothered me, are formed around the archetypal ground of what we might call the great mother. The ego complex is formed around the archetypal ground of the self. And that really is where the ego gets its cohesion. Because if you think about it, my experience in time is very erratic. You know, there's levels of awareness, levels of wakefulness and sleep, and all these uh, experiences are coming at me. But somehow I feel like I have a coherent life stream that if you said, well, tell me a little bit about your life, I would narrate some chronological fantasy. And where does that even begin to get coherence? It can't be from the ego. So it's from the self. And so Jungians are much more comfortable with kind of the fact that our ego comes and goes. And if you don't believe that, think about driving. You know, most of the time, if the road is clear and the car is working well, you're not in the ego, you're listening to music, you're thinking about a conversation, you're wondering where you're going to go with your friends on Saturday night if you're not listening to this podcast. And um, then all of a sudden, uh, you see a ball roll into the street, the ego comes right back. You're looking around what's going on. It can reconstitute very quickly. Or another time it reconstitutes is if you see the flashing red light of the police car. And that'll bring you right into your ego complex, you know. And that's a good lesson because the ego is always ready to reform 
but most of the time we don't need to be there. Um, you probably don't need your ego to brush your teeth or to, you know, dry the dishes or something like that. That's really fascinating. I like that um, because it occurs to me that, and, and I was curious what you might think about that. It seems to me that in a lot of wellness and metaphysical type spaces is um, essentially what happens a lot of time is that Freudian, Jungian, Eastern, all these different concepts of that word ego get mashed together as if they're the same thing. But what is ego is really going to depend a lot on the framework that you're using. And, you know, your example there of becoming aware of you and your surroundings when a ball rolls into the road is not the evil that a lot of people purport. You know, one of the biggest, you know, uh, put downs that you can find in a lot of spaces is, oh, that's your ego talking. Well, yes. if I'm aware that I'm talking, yeah, it probably is. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. I was thinking as you were talking of a young man that came to see me. He was a yoga instructor. And we were working. And at one point I said, well, that that really feels like your ego is getting much stronger. It was in the context of a relationship. And he went, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I don't want to. And I realized from his paradigm, from a, a particular yogic paradigm that he was using, the ego was something that needed to be released and it was not good. And so here I was using the word in a very different sense. So since that time, I've become very um, almost didactic when I use the term with when people first come to see me, because um, yeah, the same thing with the word self, you know, it's a very different concept than, you know, self magazine would have us believe, you know, I actually find it really fascinating when you were talking about the ego and kind of explaining what it is within the Jungian uh, universe. It kind of reminds me of like a centering practice, bringing awareness to the body, bringing yourself fully back into yourself, being aware of your fingertips and the tips of your toes and, and the hair on your head and just being fully aware of everything that is you. It has no personality. It has no real it is this, it is that, it is just, it is just here within the heart center or somewhere within mm-hmm. that area. It is just a thing that's there that tells you who you are and what you're doing. It's neither good nor bad. So that, that's kind of where my brain went to with ego. And actually, it helps me develop a better relationship with ego because like Jim said, I grew up in a family <clears throat> that was very aware of like, oh, your ego is too big or deflate your ego or yeah. your ego is showing, you know, and I was always taught that it was a bad thing. And so I've always had a very odd relationship with ego and trying to understand what it is. But now I I have a better understanding of it. But my my question is when people say things like that, what are they actually referring to if it isn't actually ego? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> first thing that came into my mind is uh, some sort of personality. But then I think about what Jung says about personality, which is not at all a negative thing. Um, so it's maybe kind of a, a concretized persona is what people mean. You know, like, this is who I am. 
And it's, I'm, I'll always, I will always be this. I will never not be this. This is, you know, um, this is a core value for me. I've had a lot of core values in my life and they've shifted and changed. And each one at the time that I held it, I think had a lot of integrity and was important. Um, I used to be much more bellicose, much more aggressive, um, ruthless, I would say. And uh, not necessarily toward people, although maybe, I don't know. Um, But certainly in terms of setting a goal and reaching it, I've mellowed out a lot. I think I needed to be for a variety of, of reasons in my personal life. At, a, at the time that I was so ruthless and aggressive. Um, but now I realize that that isn't a way I want to channel my energy. And, you know, we're all raised with certain things that you should be. And that often gets confused with the ego, which is much more dynamic. I like what you said. It's, it's not even with content. It's just this feeling of like coherence that everything comes into focus and then it can go out of focus. That's all right. Because we can come back. It's, it, it's a place. Um, I had a, a teacher, a Zen teacher once that said, think of it as a place that you can never leave and to which you never have to return. And I thought, well, that's Zen enough for me that I can sit with that for a while. Um, she was also a Jungian analyst, so uh, that was a double <laughs> That's message, I think. Uh, I love cones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you, say, when you say about ego, um, what I hear, and when you were talking about your client that was coming from a yoga sort of framework, um, but when I hear you talk about ego and how you're describing it, when you say your ego is getting stronger like in so many of the metaphysical communities that we're part of we would probably express that is or you're understanding your needs better or you're identifying your your boundaries better i think both of those are very congruent with the idea of ego especially boundary and um, needs because the ego can mediate the need you know I have this sense of lack. What do I need? If, if that is actualized using, let's say, a trickster complex, I may do something mm, that isn't too good. But if I could say, okay, what do I need? How can I do that? Now we're working through that integrity of uh, identity that can operate much more effectively, I think. So my question is, with the ego being a mediating force and being kind of an intermediary and facilitator in the way that I'm understanding this, and please, by all means, correct me if I'm I'm misunderstanding. No, it's fine. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> what is the role of ego in ritual? Whew. <laughs> Okay, let me think about that one. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So I'm just going to say what's coming to me. Ego is that which, when 
you enter fully into the ritual can be set aside. That the, the ritual that itself really holds what the ego feels it has to hold outside of the ritual space. But in the ritual space, the ego can soften. Mm. That, that fits exactly, Sarenton, with that cone and with a lot of our practices, because what's the first step when you do a ritual? Well, a lot of times we create sacred space, we get grounded and centered, and that would be living comfortably within that ego. So then when we get further in the ritual, we can then let it go. Right. Yeah. My yeah. regular practice is cleansing, grounding, centering, and shielding. And that's regardless of whether I'm going to work or whether I'm going to do a ritual. Um, yeah. Uh, that makes so much sense. Uh, something I'm getting really heavily involved in with, again, is uh, magical workings called Sather. And uh, Sather is, it's complex, but long story short is it's basically Nordic witchcraft. We'll, we'll call it that as a very blanket statement. And one of the hallmarks of it is to work with spirits in a way that they come to you or they come into you as part of it. And so a lot of the ritual prep that I do is literally loosening up so that the spirits can either talk to me or enter into me. Um, and this also could be what the Vartfloker, the warding song or the enticing song is there for as well is not just for the spirits to like be enticed to come to you, but also for your ego to just chill and let it happen. So a lot of this is making just total sense, especially within the paradigms I work in that mm, I love it. It's so crunchy. I love it. Thanks. I, I don't know that tradition, but as you were talking, I heard strains of Wardruna uh, singing in my ear. Yes, um, that. Yeah. That that is precisely one of the the, tr the trigger songs that I work with is from uh, oh. Ward, Wardruna, Heilung, um, and that kind of current of aesthetic and song and sound. Partly because a lot of that background fits my my Nordic uh, heathenry. But also because well, Einar Selvig just has a freaking beautiful voice and they're evocative. <laughs> Very, um, yeah. But that ego softening is really important. You're taking it to a Nordic Heathenry perspective, that ego softening is really important. And it's also why within uh, ancient Heathenry, there was this charge of ergi leveled at men, especially who did this, because it was seen as very receptive. Huh. And especially in these old... Uh, older societies being receptive was seen as being female and being the passive partner. And, oh, you couldn't be that. Um, and there's probably some Christian baggage there because who knows what the really truly ancient heathens thought, but mm -hmm. the disillusion of firm boundaries is in my experience with, with a lot of magic, really part and parcel of the package because you can't talk to God or the gods or ancestors or angels or any of that stuff. If you're holding so tight to yourself that nothing else can actually interact with you. Right. Yep. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the tradition you're talking about, but I know the idea of aspecting in uh, Wicca or witchcraft Mm -hmm. um, certainly many of the African religions and the religions of the African diaspora are, you know, what might be pejoratively called religions of possession. But 
again, you have the ritual space, usually with a center, which then makes it safe for the the um, spirit, the loa, to come in, give whatever needs to be given, and leave. Uh, and modern American spiritualism is like this too. And Jung's mother mm-hmm. was connected to spiritualist practices. And oh, that's fascinating! I Jung's about doctoral that. dissertation. I didn't know that. Yeah, his doctoral dissertation um, involved an intense investigation of the um, manifestations of a spirit medium in Switzerland. Wow, that's fascinating! I did not know that. Yep. On the psychology of so-called spiritual phenomena or something, the, I'm not getting the uh, title correct, and they may come and take my diploma away, but it's something <laughs> like that. On I the psychology <laughs> and phenomenology of so-called occult phenomena, I think is what, <laughs> what he called it. Yeah, I, I somehow doubt they're going to come pull that diploma off your wall. I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> Then I'll become ruthless again because I can do that. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm actually a little curious about the, the musical therapy that you do. How do you, um, incorporate that into the work you do with your clients and how did that kind of come about within the, the, the story of, of Ken, you know, how did that work its way into <laughs> yeah. your long line of, yeah, I it, don't, cause it's a little yeah. to the side, like, like that, that's a little, a little offshoot. But yeah. it's very fascinating to me because there are all those studies about um, people with Alzheimer's and dementia. They're using musical theory to kind of help ease some of the symptoms that they go through. And I know with my grandmother, um, we had a similar effect with her using some of her old, old favorite music from the 50s um, and late. Well, yeah, I would say about 50s era. Um, but she would brighten right up and knew exactly what she was listening to and even sing along to it. Um, so I'm just kind of curious about how that has influenced your work um, and everything that you do. I'm sorry, my brain's a little scrambled today. I've had a long Doesn't sound day. scrambled. I'd, I'd like to be that scrambled. Um, <clears throat> so that's a really interesting question. And I'll answer the last part of it first. How does it influence my work today? Because I don't work with music per se in my uh, consulting room. But what I learned in learning that modality of treatment is how to value the image so that when I work with dreams with people or when I work with active imagination, I I was very carefully trained to value every detail. And that's very Jungian, although at the time the, the, uh, the work that I did was out of a place called the Institute for Consciousness and Music, uh, which was in Maryland. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. And it was developed out of the working of a woman named Helen Bonney, who, along with many people um, during the maybe 60s, maybe early 70s, were very involved with LSD research with mentally ill people with schizophrenics and people with um, psychotic disorders. And they found that by evoking imagery using that substance, they were actually able by working with the person and the images to help them attain a greater degree of um, 
I would say mental health, although I don't like that term. <clears throat> but then, as you probably know, for various reasons, uh, that that experimental work was curtailed. <clears throat> they were no longer able to use that substance. And so each in their way, Stanislav Grof branched out and did work with breath work. Um, Helen Bonney did work with music. The, those people at that time tried to find other modalities that would allow the subject, the, the patient, to generate imagery that could then be used in dialogue with them to help them get more deeply into causes of suffering and ways to resolve it. So um, I went, I, a friend of mine, we, we were teaching together at the university I was working in, and she was a music professor. And she said, oh, I learned about this, um, this thing, and I'm going to go investigate it. Why don't we do it together? Okay, so we went and did it together. And, you know, all I could tell you is the first training, there were several trainings, but the first one, I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I think at the time I would have been in my late 20s, so I was still pretty start shirt. And um, I mean, there were people laying down and they put music and they had trees growing out of their stomachs and all this kind of, I'm going, oh my goodness, where am I? Um, but I participated and then we had to do certain of the work on our own. And I, I saw it amazingly uh, transform people in ways I just talking to them couldn't, couldn't accomplish. And so that was, that was the work that, that it was, the method was called guided imagery and music, but the guiding was really very passive. You worked with the imagery and then would ask questions about it or make suggestions about it. So, and I still, I'm in my work, I still recommend uh, as I'm working with people, thoughts will come into my mind and I'll, I'll suggest, um, you might want to listen to this or, and it works both ways. I, I learned about Ward Runa from one of the people I worked with. I'm working with who just said, Oh, I really think you'd like this music. <laughs> well, yeah, I did, but there's no way I would ever have found that music on my own, <laughs> but the self had a way of getting me to it, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. And, and now you've actually piqued my curiosity curiosity about the dream work you do um what what does that entail how do you um delve into that sort of work with others well when people come to see me uh although it's fairly open-ended i do excuse me ask questions like were you raised in a particular religious tradition do you still find that helpful do you dream And uh, everyone dreams, but often people say, oh, I don't, I don't remember my dreams. And what I, what I hear in that is I am embedded in a culture and a cultural attitude that denigrates dreams, that denigrates any non-rational resource that is made available to me for free. So I don't say that because that's more my curmudgeon coming out. But I'll say, oh, well, you know, everybody dreams. Why don't you keep a pad of paper by the bed? And, and it is uncanny to me how often simply permitting 
a person to honor their dreams will start it moving. So we get a, a dream or a, a bunch of dreams called a corpus of dreams. And you begin to work with the images. And over time, you begin to see repetition, repetition of, of, of settings, repetition of characters, repetition of sort of motifs. And those settings, characters, motifs, generally are symbolizing areas of, um, I'll say, needed work or areas of potential exploration that could actually bring a greater sense of wholeness to the individual. I remember one man I worked with and he came to see me. I can't remember how he got recommended to me. He knew I was a Jungian, but he said, now, you know, uh, you're a Jungian. I just want you to know I'm not into any of that spirituality stuff. I'm not into anything like that. I said, that's fine. We don't have to. And Jung uh, developed a method actually based on his own experience that has come to be called active imagination. So someone may have a dream and there's a particular setting, let's say. I dreamt I was in a forest and it was near a tree stump and I, I felt like I knew it, but I had never been here before. So, okay, I might say, you know, I'd like you to do an act of imagination. In your mind, go back to that tree stump. Try to recreate it in your mind's eye. And then look around, explore, see what you could find. See if there's anybody there. See if, you know, what, see what you notice. Look up, look down, kind of explore it. We call it active imagination. So this man that I talked about who didn't want any of the spiritual stuff was very vivid. He dreamt very vividly, still does. And at one point I said, let me tell you about active imagination. He said, okay, I'll try it. So fast forward a couple of years into the work and he's bringing me page after page of active imagination. And one day he came in and he said, you know, damn you. I didn't want to get into any of this stuff. And now I find myself doing an act of imagination before I get together with my family at a holiday, <laughs> because I know there'll be something there that can help me just stay centered. So, you know, if in my experience, if people are open, dreams can be incredibly valuable because they, they can reveal to us secrets that we don't even know we're keeping from ourselves but in a very innocent way. I mean, you're not culpable for your dream. They just come to you when the ego is not present. When we're asleep, the ego is not there. So that the ego that appears in the dream becomes a very important touchstone that could potentially expand the awareness of the ego in the waking world. This is fascinating. Uh, it reminds me so much of my work with Telesterian work, uh, memory palace work. Oh, um, oh, oh, okay. I know that. I didn't know the word Telesterian, but. Yeah. So. And, and like Giordano Bruno stuff. and Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it has its roots in uh, Greek um, practice from even earlier. Uh, it was, I believe, Aristotle. I could be misremembering this. But the way that it was worked with with me was, on the one hand, you pay attention to your dreams, 
And the Telesterion serves as a kind of a meeting place, as a safe space oh. between the personality that you are and the, in this case, initiating spirits that I was working with. Um, and that is a very fascinating place because it can encompass dreamlike imagery, solid imagery that you know what it is when you're experiencing it. Cause the point of the Telesterion is to uh, do it while you're actively awake and aware in a ritual space. And there's kind of like two ways of going about it. You can either encounter it or you can build it. And the memory palace in its original construction was used as a mnemonic, but That's in occult circles, yeah. In occult circles, it's been kind of, it holds this kind of dual purpose of mnemonic. Yes. Touchstone for, for you and spirits and the astral plane is a kind of neutral meeting place where you, you're in control of the territory who can come in or out, but it ultimately the images that you get, what comes out of it is, what you're putting into it and what the spirits are putting into it. And it's very interesting to me that the dream work you're talking about strikes me as very similar, not the same, but very similar to the work that I did with the Telesterian and still do because it's that neutral meeting ground of your, the uh, active imagination work that you're talking about strikes as very similar to this because you're giving this space over so that you can have these interactions in a way that, your ego isn't threatened and -hmm. it's not reacting and that you can get information and bring it back. And it's useful in some, some degree. So that's, I find that utterly fascinating. And I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. Yeah, that is when you were taught, when you mentioned Greece, it reminded me of um, one of Jung's for, you know, first circle of people, C.A. Meyer, published a book uh, called Ancient Incubation and Modern Psychotherapy. Yes. Where he talked, oh, okay, where he talked about the healing temples of Asclepius in Greece. That's what we're talking about. Okay. And people would go there, people who were troubled Mm -hmm. or ill, and they would be allowed simply to sleep to get an image that ultimately would bring healing. And uh, that's very much, we're in that tradition. Yes. I I wanted to say something about the incubation stuff earlier because ADHD is lovely where I'll have this thought. And if I don't voice it, it's gone. Um, So one of that is something that I was like, wow, yes, this sounds exactly like an incubation period where, and it wasn't just Asclepius. There was a ton of gods, uh, Apollo and others as well. Mm. that They all had temples. Yeah. Yeah, and there'd be sections, especially for gods associated with healing, wellness, and the mind, where you would be able to go and incubate with that god. And Asclepius is the one that a lot of people point to because we can see the physical uh, yeah, yeah. offerings that people made of like the castings of their arms, their eyes, etc., mm-hmm. as uh, votive offerings. But the, just so much of what you're talking about comports with my understanding of ancient healing modalities. And it's like, Oh yeah, this is why I wanted to study doing in psychology when I was coming. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Right. Right. And all what you're saying is for, for me, Jung goes like this and ultimately encompasses, we can find Jungian um, content. Jungians can find value in anything because mm-hmm. of the, the openness of the method. It, in the later part of his life, Jung 
published a work on UFOs because that happened to be what was uh, popular, what was coming up in the collective. And um, as you all know, he studied alchemy and so many other what are considered esoteric or non non psychologically traditional disciplines. Um, but his theory is so comprehensive and the attitude is so humble that I think we, we've learned that we can learn about the psyche regardless of what we're looking at. Uh, Ken, I want to ask, we're a little over an hour. Are you okay for time for a couple more questions or? Yeah, a couple of more questions would be okay. great. Thank okay. Saren, um, did you have one that you were getting ready to ask or? No, I'm just, I'm really into this conversation. Oh, yeah, I know. This is a fantastic conversation. I am loving this. All right. So I had a couple questions. Uh, uh, one, and I think you just touched on it a little bit with that answer is, um, you know, obviously Jung is no longer with us. How would you say Jungian thought and practice is still evolving and changing? <clears throat> That's a very important question uh, because Jung is not, Jungian psychology is not this monolithic structure, you know, based on the writings of some man who died uh, 60 years ago or more. Um, and we're seeing new areas of growth and work in developmental areas. How can this, how can we come to understand the psyche when we look at the development of children? And there have been amazing interpretations, amazing studies of, for example, autism from a Jungian perspective. Um, also, uh, we're looking very differently at the psychology of women. A lot of the work uh, currently being done is to um, focus on the psychology of women in the context of the psychology of humanity and not, not view women either as something separate or even necessarily as uh, a, a category of expression or experience. Um, there's a lot of work coming in that uh, area. Another area is looking at other cultures and how other cultures can actually enrich our understanding of, of Jungian concepts. I mean, Jung visited other cultures, but if you re read what he wrote, uh, the terminology that he used, again, which was the terminology of his time, was extremely Eurocentric and hierarchical. And we're understanding that that isn't a particularly good way to look at uh, what we can learn from other cultures. I'm trying to think of other areas. Certainly the idea you alluded to, Sarenth, polytheism, um, to move beyond what could be seen as a monotheistic model of the psyche by having the self. And uh, James Hillman, for example, is someone who's moved much more in that direction to honor all of the gods, to honor all of the archetypes and to see the, the web work, the matrix that exists, that connects all of the archetypes in any particular 
mythic system. And all mythic systems are attempts to map the archetypal ground, which is, you know, content free. I really just want to, I really just want to say, I'm really glad that um, some areas of the, I guess medical realms are taking into consideration that women in studies have largely been overlooked or ignored or just kind of thrown into the same category of the tests that were predominantly done on, on males. And there is a lot of studies coming out saying a lot of the dosages are based off of a male physicality. A lot of psychology is done off of how the male psyche works. Um, Even like getting ADD or ADHD diagnosed in females is super, super, super difficult to do, often manifesting into depression and other problematic um, things that would be, I'm just, it warms my heart to hear that these things are finally coming around and we're exploring other avenues that will help not take away from what we've already learned, but also support what we already have there and add to what's there. Right. So right. I'm, I'm glad I, right. to hear that. <laughs> well, a particular gift that Jung brought to this whole field is the idea that we, we don't pathologize. And Jung wasn't an idiot. I mean, he was a psychiatrist and he had worked in psychiatric hospitals and, and he understood that at certain times in a person's life, they may need to be in a more restrictive environment for the sake of their own well-being. But his gift was that just because someone was labeled schizophrenic, which in his day was called uh, dementia precox, just because somebody had this diagnosis didn't mean that what was coming out of their fantasies or what we might judge, judge as hallucinations doesn't have healing value. And that's very important because we don't realize how much we norm, we normify, is that a word? Um, The way people should be. And I always say the difference between a mystic and a schizophrenic is the mystic knows who not to talk to. Because some people can't tolerate uh, something that seems strange or unusual given Uh, our conventional ways of viewing the world. But we wouldn't have growth in areas like physics or medicine or uh, point to it if we weren't open to something coming in from that, what Jung called the psychoid realm. Not quite in the psyche yet, but wanting to be there. I actually really liked your comment about the difference between the schizophrenic and the psyche, because I I have a friend who's a child's uh, psychologist and she's done a lot of studies into uh, schizophrenia and the other um, mental uh, illnesses that produce hallucinations or voices or um, along Mm -hmm. that lines. um, Cause that's her area of expertise. And she has studied and read about, different studies from all across the world. And it seems like in very, um, I guess, industrial cultures like our, like our own, where 
it is predominantly viewed as something that is negative and bad to see things that aren't there, to hear things that aren't there, um, that those voices and those images often shift and change the older the child gets and become more violent and more aggressive. Whereas in a culture, say in like India or in yeah. uh Mongolia or more of a spiritually based um, accepting community, they nurture that sort of thing and teach the child these, no, these are messages from our ancestors. These are messages from our gods. And they actually develop a more deeper understanding of those and have a better relationship with them and actually lead a fairly normal life more so than the people here who are diagnosed with that and are told that's bad. This is terrible. You shouldn't have these things that that's a demon, that's a devil in your brain, all that kind of stuff. So that that was just an interesting thing to hear you say that. And I'm glad it kind of backed up all the things that she's also been learning about it too. I think, I think it's really important to note in those societies, they have methods and methodologies for differentiating internal stimuli from God's ancestors, spirits, and that kind of thing, um, that a lot of these cultures have means and ways of testing whether or not a particular person, uh, whether they are uh, mentally ill or not, uh, has a gift of insight or gift of communicating with the spirits and that kind of thing. It's... I, I'm not saying that you're you're in any way, shape, or form stepping into into that territory, either Storm or Ken. I'm just really putting it out there to be very careful to our listeners that this is not for us to say go off your medications or stop doing your therapy or any of that other stuff. Please don't do that. I, I will well, never tell you to go off your medications. It, it seems to me adult. that what we're really talking about isn't necessarily the difference between spirit communication or not. What we're really talking about is societies that have a positive or constructive outlet for some of these things versus ones that try to repress it or ignore it. Yes. And I um, and just, just to be really clear, yeah. really quick, I don't think either of you were saying that. But just as a CYA for the the podcast, yeah, I, yeah, understandable. I was just trying to, I was just throwing my point yeah. in there that that's that's kind of how it comes across to me. Like some societies, some cultures mm-hmm. have more positive outlets, and they're not necessarily looking to. And and you're absolutely right, Sarah. You know, you people people need to be responsible for their own health, and right. and that as well. But <clears throat> um, it just strikes me that that's a paradigm that we're talking about, right? And I, I'm glad that you brought that up, Sarah. And I'll, I'll throw this in, that not only do we not advocate going off medication, because that's a shadow projection as well, right? Here we have these substances. We just call them medication. Other cultures may have divine substances that do something that helps equilibrate someone's suffering. You know, so to say, you know, there's something wrong with that is again, an example of shadow projection. Um, and a colleague uh, has been spending, spending some time, this is a, a psychiatrist, looking at the action of psychotropic medication at the cellular level, because the action of these substances are also exemplifying archetypes. So for example, 
in the case of depression, a uh, SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, is operating from the archetypal ground of thou shalt not pass, right? And it closes Mm -hmm. off the receptor to allow serotonin to remain in the synaptic cleft and others operate in different ways. So um, absolutely, there's no advice being given here about that. And in fact, if we look closely and have the right way to look, we can see that the deep psyche is operating in substance, just like in psyche. Mm. Um, an old Jungian analyst who was a psychiatrist, he's now gone, uh, dead, uh, Edward Whitmont, uh, wrote a book called Psyche and Substance, where he looked at the relationship between the mind and what we might call um, medication from a deeply Jungian perspective. So it it really, uh, unfortunately, some people think that Jungians are against medication. In my experience, we're really not against anything. (laughs) We're we're just trying to understand how it works and how it might help us better understand how the psyche operates. Yeah, that's fascinating. I also like uh, when you were talking about... uh how you feel like the the field is exploring more women and women's issues. Um, it strikes me that really where there is huge amounts of potential for exploration right now, because so many more people are becoming open about things like gender identity, gender fluidity. Yes. And so that, you know, even takes it away from the, 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 uh, duality male female it constructed and, and mm-hmm. allows a lot of insight into an entire spectrum through a union lens which i i think it could be really fascinating as well yeah i'm glad that you said that because as i was talking about that in my mind i'm going wait a minute this is pretty dual what are you doing <laughs> and i think you're right i i think that union psychology for me uh and i have colleagues um who are working in this area um the, the whole idea of gender identity, what is gender, how do we understand gender, I can't imagine a better psychological perspective uh, than the Jungian for uh, coming to deeply understand what this is all about. And I know that's pushing the product, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a Jungian analyst, so <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect you not to. But also, like, th- this is one of the things that I, I find really wonderful about the more open areas of psychology and psychiatry, where it's not a you stand outside these gates. It's there's no gates; the door is open. Right. right. Like, I think that there's something to be said for for keeping safety and keeping standards of practice and excellence, but there's also, I think part of the issue that a lot of people have had with psychological verbiage is a same thing that I see in a lot of political circles, a lot of general scientific circles is that the jargon is starting to get in the way of actually communicating what we're talking about. And it's one of those things I find really lovely about your explanations here is that they're approachable and they're not really the parts where you got to use jargon. You're very clear about what you're, you're meaning, because I think that has been the biggest bugbear in 
medicine in general is I'm going to gatekeep the medical information that is necessary to your wellness and health behind this impenetrable barrier of language. And I, I really appreciate that you're bringing really simple down to earth explanations and examples yeah. of this stuff. So not only for us, but for our listeners as well, who may not have realized that they're actually more interested in this stuff than they started off with. Great. That would be a nice outcome. <laughs> well, I, I, I have one last question for you and I'm, t- I'm trusting my intuition on this one. Um, so this is one that, really isn't anything we've talked about so far, but I feel really prompted to ask, and this can relate to your practice or not. I leave it completely up to you, but I'm really interested for some reason in what's exciting to the Ken Project right now. What kind of things are you really excited about? What kind of passion projects are you pursuing at the moment? That's interesting. Um, I'm I'm preparing a course for our analyst training program uh, that isn't going to be looking at psychology at all. We're looking at, um, oh, I don't have the syllabus here, but uh, phenomenology because Jung was grounded in phenomenology. We're looking at uh, physics, artificial intelligence. Um, I'm looking at a book by Donald Hoffman, the case against reality, how evolution um, hides the truth from our eyes. Um, We're looking at uh, Gurdjieff and Ospensky teachings. We're going to be looking at magical and mystical traditions. It's just, um, I'm, I'm getting excited to help the people who are training to be analysts understand that this is something that should widen your interest rather than narrow it. Uh, So that's what I've been working on right now. Wow. You know, if you're willing to open that up to people who aren't analysts, uh, to, to quote the meme, take my money, please. Um, <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds absolutely amazing. Well, I, you know, I want to thank you once again for joining us tonight. This has been just an amazing conversation. And uh, I, I feel like I've, I'm, I've learned so much and have so much that I can think about and how to incorporate into my life and my practice. And, and uh, this has just really been amazing. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. And it's nice. Now I have faces to go with the voices when I listen to the podcast. So that's very <laughs> helpful. Yeah. Thank you very much for asking. Thank you. This was here. amazing. And uh, to all our listeners out there, we appreciate you and thank you so much. And we will talk to you next time around the fire.